You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Hello, the reading for this evening is from Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 21. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come! Gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth where their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's a joy to be here with you. Thank you for having me. Um, my name is Spencer Brown. I pastor Center City Church. We are just a couple blocks away and a few hours earlier in the day for our church service, just off First and Lomas. And we've had uh, Nathan come and preach a couple times at our church. And I will just say he has always been so faithful to the Word when he comes. And uh, one of our church's favorite guys to come in and preach, and so we're very thankful for him and thankful to have you guys so close to us here in downtown, and 
really uh, appreciate that. So, all right. Let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for our time to come to the word today. Father, your word is, is good. Every passage we open up to is breathed out by you that is profitable for instruction and reproof. Father, some passages seem a little bit more difficult and heavy and knowing how we are to respond in light of them. Father, as we get to this passage in Revelation 19 that um, just has so much going on and so many images and that we would just see it so clearly that we would uh, see this vision of Christ, that we would uh, grab hold of the names that are given to us for Christ and that we would walk away remembering that your word tells us that one day every uh, knee will bow and every tongue will confess uh, the name of Jesus Christ and that he is Lord and that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. It's in his name we pray. Amen. It was the best of times and it was the worst of times. Those words open up Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities describing from two very different perspectives one moment in history, really a season in history, a moment from the perspective of people living in Paris and people living in London, and for some it was a great time, and for others it was the worst of times. That opening line would fit well with our passage this afternoon. This is a passage that describes one event, gives us one grand vision of Christ, and for some it will be a great and wonderful time, and for others it will be the worst of times. So if you have your Bibles, if they're not already open to Revelation chapter 19, Go ahead and open them up. Revelation is the last book in your Bible. If you're not familiar with the Bible tonight, the last book, just a few chapters from the very end. Revelation chapter 19, and we are gonna start in verse six, primarily because we're starting in the middle of the chapter. Chapter 18 has given us one of the few poetic sections in the book of Revelation describing the fall of Babylon, but not, not the real city Babylon, but Babylon in that she is the uh, portrayal of the world's system of thought and how life works best. And it describes her downfall and it shows contrasting perspectives on her downfall. Our passage will do the same thing as it speaks of Christ's return, and it will not speak, this is not the first vision of Christ in the book of Revelation. If you went to the Claris Conference, you heard a great sermon on Revelation chapter 1, where we saw the first vision of Christ, a vision that really portrays Christ as a, 
a prophet and a priest that is caring for and ministering to the seven churches of chapter 2 and chapter 3. Seven churches, by the way, that the whole letter of Revelation is written to. It's not as though chapters 2 and 3 are the only passages that were meant to be read by those individual churches. It's important to remember the whole letter was actually circulated amongst those seven churches and throughout those seven cities. The whole book is meant for them, not just their little sections within those chapters. I think it's a good reminder that all of Revelation is important for Christian life for those of us that are in churches. It's not as though chapters 2 and 3 have really specific church application and then 4 through 21 or 4 through 22 are all about the future. It's all meant to help us live the Christian life. And then there's another vision of Christ. We sang about this vision in chapter 4 and chapter 5. The question arises in heaven, who is worthy to open the seals? Who's worthy to open the scrolls? And no one. I mean, imagine in heaven being silent because there's nobody in heaven worthy to open the scroll. And we get this vision of Christ as a lamb. Not, not nearly as glorious and magnificent as the vision of Christ as the Ancient of Days in chapter 1 with white wool hair and fiery eyes and bronze feet. Uh, this is a, a lamb that is slain. He doesn't even look like he's living. It looks like he's been slain. And yet he is the one that is worthy to open the scroll. And now we have this third vision of Christ in this book. And notice how it begins in verse 11 of chapter 19. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. Now anytime heaven opens in scripture, something really big, something really important is about to happen. There's really a couple places in the New Testament where this happens. One is at the baptism of Jesus. Remember that heaven opens, we have this, this wonderful phrase that's said about this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased and the spirit descends like a dove. It's almost as, as if this is uh, the, the bringing of heaven to earth in this person of Jesus Christ. This is the inauguration of his ministry. God has come to earth and is about to act here on earth. When heaven opens, God acts. But the other time that heaven opens in the New Testament is in the book of Acts. If you remember when Stephen is being stoned and he looks up and he sees Christ standing there waiting to receive him into glory. And I think both images are in mind that when heaven opens here, Christ is about to come out and he is about to act here on earth. But I think there is also a wonderful reception for God's faithful servants who have served him and are ready, ready to come home. One of the great questions throughout the book of Revelation that is looming all the way back from chapter 6 is a question asked by martyrs who are described as sitting underneath the altar, the place where the blood would drip down from the altar and pool underneath. 
where the martyrs lay and they cry out and they say, how long, O Lord, until you're going to avenge our blood? How long until you act in response to what's happened to us? And so I think Revelation chapter 19 is part of the answer. That God is about to act and he's about to welcome home his people who are on earth. There's four names that are given to Christ in this portrayal of him. We're going to look at those four names, and these are four names that I hope that we get to know really well. Notice what it says, that one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. I think it's important that we cling to these names, these two names of Christ, that he is both faithful and true before we see what Christ is about to do. The end of this chapter, as we read through it, is is not a beautiful portrayal of this world and humanity. It is a a war that is, is portrayed. There is a lot of bloodshed. It is almost something that comes from a Stephen King novel. This is not something that we want to be a part of, but it is important to remember that what happens is happening from someone who is faithful and true. This is not vindictive Christ that is coming. This is not angry, out of control, abusive Christ that is coming. This is Christ who's coming to judge and to make war, who is faithful and true. He's faithful to the mission that God gave him. And he's true, he has integrity in the way that he has carried it out. Notice even that his eyes are like flame of fire as if they are piercing to see beyond just the behaviors of those who are on this world but can pierce even to the heart to see the motive behind the actions that are being done. Seems like this last couple months I've had a string of references to write for people for different um, things that they're trying to get into, whether they're different certifications or different programs for summer. And I was thinking about what it means to be faithful and true in writing a reference for someone. If you were to read a reference that someone, if you're a boss and you're going to hire someone and you're trying to get a reference on that person, the best kind of reference is someone that is both faithful and true. See, someone that's only faithful to the person that they're writing a reference for might tend to embellish the person just a little bit, make them sound a little bit better than they actually are. And so they get to to work on the first day and you're like, I don't think this is the person that was recommended to me. They were described as the hardest worker that has ever walked on the face of the earth and yet after three hours of work, they're ready to go home. You want someone that's faithful and true, but you don't want someone that is just true either and not really faithful to who the person is. I wrote a recommendation for someone who was wanting to get a counseling certification and I, I could have said some very true things about her and not been super faithful to who she really is. I could have said, you know, uh, Hannah is a woman and she works at Center City and she is a good counselor. 
I'm not sure she would have gotten her certification, but all those things were true. I wasn't really faithful to actually describing who she really is, and Christ is faithful to the mission that God gave him. Faithful, as it says in Philippians, all the way to the point of death. And he is true in that he has carried it out in absolute integrity. He's not acting on his opinions or his vengeful attitude or spirit that he comes to judge and make war because he is faithful and true to the God that has sent him, to the Father that has sent him. Christ is God. I want to make sure that's clear. I didn't think I said that just right. Don't want word getting back to Nathan that Christ is not God. He is fully God, and he came at the sending of the Father. And notice what it says, that he has another name. This one's a little bit more unique. Notice he has a name that no one knows but himself. Now, isn't this a little bit odd? He has a name that nobody knows, and yet he's already actually been given a name. He's already been called faithful and true, and actually he's going to be called two other names in addition to this. How does he have a name that nobody knows? It was believed in ancient culture that if you could learn a person's real name, their true name, sometimes as it was referred to, you could gain power over them. You could gain authority over them. Do you remember in the Gospels when Jesus would go and he would cast out demons and the demons would try and call out his name? They would say, oh, holy one of Israel. A lot of scholars believe that they were trying to gain authority or power over Christ. That by calling out his name, that they would gain authority over him. This is one of the things that is promised to those who conquer in Pergamum. The church, the city of Pergamum. Those who conquer will be given a white stone with a name that nobody knows except them. We have, or if you've read Revelation, you know that there are quite a few grimacing, powerful, seeming characters in the book. There are dragons. There are beasts. There are weird images in this book. And reading through it, we might be left wondering who is really in control? Who really has authority in this book? I mean, this dragon that we read about sometimes in Revelation seems, seems mighty powerful and seems like he can inflict lots of damage. And yet, this name is a reminder that nobody Nobody has authority over Christ. That Christ comes and he is authoritative over the dragon. He is authoritative over the beast. He is authoritative over the false prophet. And he has a name that nobody knows. Nobody will have power over him. But he has another name. This name, in verse 13, he is called the Word of God. This is a very John writing. If um, you remember back in the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John and Revelation are written by the same person, the Apostle John, one of the disciples of Jesus, not written by John the Baptist. John opens his Gospel with, in the beginning was the Word. 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. A wonderful declaration of Christ's deity. And now he reminds us that he is called the Word of God. And notice that he has a robe that is dipped in blood. Now there's a little bit of debate on what, where the blood comes from. We might be tempted to, to think that this is a wonderful gospel image of the blood of Christ that was shed and his garment that was dipped in that blood that was shed on the cross. And may, it may be that. It also may be that this is referring to the blood of the martyrs back from chapter 6, the ones who cried out asking, how long, O Lord? But I think, if we look in the context of the passage, that this is not, this is not the blood of Christ and it's not the blood of the saints, that this is the blood of the enemies of Christ. Look just a little bit further in verse 15, where it talks about he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. There's an old I Love Lucy episode where Lucy gets into a winepress. I don't know if you remember, she ties up her dress and she gets into the wine press and she starts stomping on the grapes. And what happens when you stomp on grapes? Come on, this can be a little interactive here. They splatter and they splash up. I think this is the image of the passage. That Christ gets into the wine press of God's fury, an image all the way back from Revelation 14. And he stomps and he treads on his enemies. And the blood from the wine press where God's enemies lay splatter up into the garments of Christ. It's really a horrific image to think about. So he has blood on his garments. He's called the word of God. And we get this wonderful quote from Psalm chapter 2. Describes the anointed Christ in verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. And notice what he does with this. He strikes down the nations. And he will rule them, rule them with a rod of iron. This gives us the image of shepherding. The word rule is the Greek word that comes from where we get the English word shepherding, poimenos. He rules them. He shepherds with a rod of iron. Now, if you were a sheep, and we are not sheep here, but if you were, you would not necessarily want your shepherd to shepherd you with a rod of iron. It would not be the most gentle of instruments to get your attention, to draw you in. But this is not a rod of iron that's meant to corral the sheep or to gently draw them back when they wander astray. But this is a rod of iron that is used to defeat the enemies. Think about a shepherd when a wolf would get into the pen or a thief would come in to try and steal the sheep, then you would want a shepherd that has a rod of iron. And that is what Christ has, a rod of iron. 
He will tread on them, the winepress of the fury, the wrath of God Almighty. And then notice lastly the fourth name on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Like I said earlier, lots of kings in the book of Revelation, lots of leaders, lots of rulers. But make no mistake, there is only one King of Kings and one Lord of Lords, and that is Christ Himself. The name that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ Himself. This image of Christ is not the image of a priest that is caring for the lampstands, for the churches. It's not the image of a slain lamb, but it is an image of a mighty warrior, a mighty king that is coming to do battle against his enemies. And there will be one of two responses that you have to this image of Christ. The first response is what we find in the first part of our passage, verses 6 through 11. Notice What happens, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Just one of those images is loud enough. I heard thunder yesterday. I don't hear thunder that often. I'm from North Carolina, and we have had thunder all the time. Lots of thunder, lots of rain. I love living in New Mexico where we don't have it all the time, but I was reminded yesterday of how loud thunder can be. It wasn't even that loud of thunder, but it was still loud. And then you think about the mighty rushing waters. I mean, just just imagine how loud this song is being sung. That one of those two images is not enough to capture the singing that is about to take place. I know that this is a church that sings, because I know Matt, and I know Nathan, and I know that you guys have hymn sings. I know that this is a church that likes to sing, and I could even hear it when I was standing up here. But think about, as loud as it sounds in here, on a Sunday evening, how loud It will be in heaven when the two images that are describing the song are that of thunder and rushing water. And notice what they sing. Hallelujah. There's a cluster of hallelujahs in the book of Revelation here. It's it's not a word that's used really in the New Testament, and, and, and all of its uses are are right here in chapter 19. It's a word that comes from two Hebrew words, Hallel, which means to praise, and Yah, which is part of the name of Yahweh, to praise Yahweh, to give thanks, to give glory to the covenantal God. And notice, hallelujah, praise to God, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. This is a song of praise because when Christ comes as a conquering warrior, he comes to reign. Let us rejoice and exult, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. You see, for the one 
who is in Christ, this vision of Christ is not a scary vision at all. It's not a terrifying vision. It's actually a a vision of great joy, of great happiness, of great gladness and singing. It's compared to a marriage. Think about the last wedding that you attended. The wedding is great. It's wonderful. But what comes after the wedding? It's the celebration, right? Sometimes there's a supper. Sometimes there's just finger food. But regardless of how much food there is, it's a cel- there's a celebration. There's great food. There's great drink. People are happy, excited. Sometimes there's dancing. There's singing. Sometimes it goes for hours after the wedding. I mean, it just makes us smile thinking about the wedding. And you see, when Christ returns, for those who are in Christ, those who have put their faith in Christ, Christ's return will be like the celebration that comes at a wedding. You see, our weddings are maybe an afternoon, maybe an afternoon into an evening, or maybe an evening into the the early morning. But but the weddings in in, in Jesus' culture and John's culture, I mean, they were celebrations that would go days on end. Weeks sometimes. It's why when Jesus is in Cana in John chapter 2, they actually run out of wine because it's a long celebration. Can you imagine the celebration of what it's going to be like when Christ the warrior returns? You think about the best wedding and best celebration you have ever been to. And then times it by a number that you can't even imagine. And that's what this wedding will be like. And notice, it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Notice this, that the clothes, the fine linens, are both given to the bride and worn by the bride. Right? She's both given the clothes, but then notice it says they are the righteous deeds of the saints. The saints that the deed that the the deeds that the saints are performing. This is kind of like how Ephesians chapter 2 says that you are saved by grace through faith, not of works, but that you have been prepared or you have good works prepared for you to do. Or the way Paul in Philippians says that you are to work out your salvation because God is at work in you. Right? That we are both given righteous garments. And we wear and do righteous deeds. In the book of Revelation, there are, I think, three kind of themes of righteous deeds that are continually commanded for God's people to perform. The first one is this. That we are called to patiently endure. To patiently endure. 
I just tell you, I'm not a big fan of either of those words, and I'm not a fan that they're put together. I don't really like patience, and I don't like enduring, right? I mean, they both imply this idea that you are waiting for something that you don't have, and that something unbearable is happening that you have to raise up underneath, and I, I don't like that. But it's unmistakable, unmistakable in the book of Revelation. All throughout the letters written to the seven churches, John calls them to endure patiently. It means when you're in a stage of life that you really don't want to be in, you're called to endure patiently means that you, when you have a sickness that isn't being healed and isn't going away, that you're called to patiently endure. It means that when you're in a marriage and it seems like things are not going well, that we endure patiently. Or you have a child that has wandered down a path that you disapprove of, that you endure patiently, that you take one step at a time. Jesus said that you don't have to worry about tomorrow. There's enough troubles for you to worry about in today, so why don't you just let tomorrow take care of itself? And so we endure patiently as we focus on what the Lord has set before us for today. Another theme of righteous deeds that God calls us to in Revelation is to keep His Word. It's amazing in Revelation how many times keeping God's Word and the Beatitudes, the blessing, go together. We're called to keep God's commandment. The word that's used is a word that's meant to guard something, to treasure something, the way you might keep something that is precious and valuable to you. The way you might have a safe in your home where you put the things that are most valuable to you or you might store them at a bank or you might have security on your home to protect your family or security on your uh, banking information because it's important, because it's precious to you. And Revelation calls us to keep, to guard God's commandments. They should be precious to the Christian. They're a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. That should be one of the most precious things that we keep and that we try to guard and preserve. The other theme that I think God's people are called to do and respond in is that we are called to testify about Christ. Notice how it even comes up at the end. John tries to worship and bow down to this angel and he says, you you shouldn't do that. That's, that's not a good idea. I'm a fellow servant just like you. Imagine an angel saying, I'm just like you are. I'm not any different. I'm a fellow servant. 
And he says, don't worship me. Worship God. I'm just like you. I hold to the testimony of Jesus. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. All of prophecy has been testifying to what Jesus has done. And you and I are called to testify to that as well. We are called to testify to that wherever God has placed you. Moms, to testify to that in your home with your children. To testify to that in the jobs where God has put you. Those of you that are bosses, to testify to that in your workplaces. To your fellow employees. To your neighbors in your neighborhood. To people on your baseball teams and people you go run with and exercise with, testify to Christ. I, I'm a big fan of like relational evangelism, building relationships with people, but sometimes we worry too much, we spend too much time focusing on the relationship that we actually never get to the evangelism piece, and we are actually called to testify about Christ. I love building relationships with people, but we are to testify. Notice, though, that within this, there is an invitation. This seems to be invitation season, does it not? Spring and summer are times of graduations and weddings. I've gotten a lot of invitations, and I'll just go ahead and tell you, my track record of response this year of actually attending has not been great. I've, I've, it's probably less than 50%. You see, when you get an invitation, it typically tells you to RSVP, which means you're, you're either going to go or you're not going to go. And this invitation works the same way. Because blessed are those who are invited. An invitation means that you can choose to come or you can choose not to come. That this wedding is not being forced on anybody, but it's something that you are being invited to. The language that we use in the Christian life to respond to this invitation is that of repentance and faith. We respond to God's invitation to this marriage, to this ceremony, by repenting, by turning from our sin and putting our faith in Jesus Christ. Whatever it is that we were looking to to provide our source of happiness and life and salvation, we forsake it, we turn our back on it, and we turn and direct our focus to Christ alone as our source of salvation. If you have never done that today, you have an invitation in this passage to respond to Christ in repentance. But there is another response, and that is the response in the latter part of this passage. And it's to say no. To say no to the invitation. And it too is described as a supper, but in a little bit different way. Notice in verse 17, I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to the birds that fly directly overhead and said, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. You see, the invitation to the second supper 
is not given to humans. So it's kind of the irony of this passage that the birds are invited to this supper. And it's those that reject Christ that are the supper themselves. You see, the response to this invitation means that you will either be dining at the table with Christ or you will be served on the table where the birds come and feast. And notice, it doesn't matter how great you are, how high your rank is, how much strength and power you possess. Kings, captains, mighty men, horses, riders, all men, free and slave, small and great, doesn't matter who you are. We're called to respond. But this is not only de the defeat of the armies, it is the defeat of the beast and the false prophet. Those who have deceived the inhabitant, those who inhabit the world, and they're thrown into the lake of fire which burns with sulfur. And it seems as though a great battle is about to happen, and yet nobody in Christ's army lifts a sword. The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. That word of Christ that comes from his mouth, the one word defeats those who stand against him. Great and small, kings and captains, free and slave, one word of Christ will fail them. They will be defeated. It's amazing to me how such a joyful passage and such a sobering passage can be juxtaposed to one another. But when Christ comes as a warrior, He comes bearing those four names that we read about, faithful and true, a name that no one knows, the Word of God, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. It will truly be the best of times and the worst of times. The question is, is which time will it be for you? Will that return bring about great joy and happiness and singing? Or will it be a sad, sobering day of defeat? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this beautiful and terrifying vision of Christ. We thank you that he is faithful and true. I thank you that he has a name that nobody knows. He is the word of God and he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. May we respond in faith. May we repent of sin that is remaining in our lives and May we continue to walk in the righteous garments 
that you have given to us through Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.